Hello, my name's Matthew Packwood and welcome to Masters of Motion. Each episode, I'll be talking to some of Australia's and New Zealand's leading motion design, animation and visual effects artists. Today, I'll be having a chat with Octavio Delalis. For over two decades, Octavio has worked in high-end visual effects and post-production, specialising in areas including modelling, lighting and creative direction. Over his career, he's worked in film, television and extensively in commercial work. He's worked at large companies including Channel 7, Animal Logic and Allura. He's also worked for leading brands including Coca-Cola, Nescafe and Anchor Milk. He now runs a boutique studio specialising in fluid simulations and particle work. Today we'll discuss his career, the state of the industry and also discuss what it takes to do a good liquid simulation. Thanks very much for taking the time and coming in and sharing your knowledge with us. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Matthew, for having me on this excellent podcast. I'm very excited to be here. So what advice would you have for students and artists who would like to work in particles or simulation work? Don't. (laughs) Firstly, you need to learn to observe things closely, to develop a good eye. And you do that by maybe learning to draw or sketch then it's all the technical stuff because a lot of the a lot of the simulation work these days uh, lacks that detail, the level of detail and um, nuance that you can see in nature. Okay, so you need to have a good eye so you can see what to match what you're trying to do. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Um, I think that goes uh, for every sort of VFX or CG job that you might want to have. It's probably the best skill to have to have a good eye. Okay. How do you reckon you get that eye? With time and practice and some constructive criticism, (laughs) (laughs) which I get from my partner sometimes. Cool. Yeah, I was was pretty bad when I started. I was really crap at proportions. I would do models and they were completely wacky and I would look at them and think, oh, they look awesome. And, you know, someone would come in and go, no, that looks like crap. You have to do like this, like that. So there's a big learning curve. Yeah, look, I think some people have that uh, built in. Uh, they're good with artistic endeavors. And then the technical side, you can always learn it. But I find it's harder to learn the, the arty stuff than the technical stuff. What is the most widely used software in particle work? I think it depends what work you're doing is for. Uh, if it's for broadcasts, uh, you can do a whole bunch of stuff with Cinema 4D, even 3Ds Max, Maya. When it comes to more higher heavy-duty effects, Houdini tends to be used a lot more. Constantly, there's new plugins coming out for Cinema 4D, I'm seeing. Uh, Even RealFlow now has uh, versions that run as part of Cinema 4D and 3D Studio Max and Maya. But it comes down to control. I find that pre-packed meals version of software, which is a black box, you can't really open it up and customize it. It's not as powerful. But Houdini, for example, it's a lot more powerful, a lot more customizable, but on the same hand, it's a lot harder to learn. And unless you've done it many, many times, it's a bit slower to set it up. Yeah, because I had a crack at Houdini and I found it almost impenetrable. I uh, could not understand it. Is there any <laughs> is there any After Effects ones that students could use or simpler ones that they could use just to get their hand around the idea and the initial concepts? 
Yeah, look, I don't use After Effects, but there is Trap Code and Particular, I think it's called. Uh, there's a whole bunch of plugins to make, um, maybe not simulations, but particle work. Cool. So what's the difference between simulations and particle work? Okay, so particles could be anything. Could be sparks, could be just loose grains floating around, could be smoke. Particle work generally doesn't interact with other particles. That's why a lot of the particle software or plugins is very fast because you're not dealing with particle A hitting particle B and particle C. They're, they're not interacting with each other. Yeah. Simulation work, it uses particles, most of them. Uh, I mean, there's a bit of tech jargon with SPH solvers or flip solvers. They all use particles at some point, but these particles react to the surrounding particles. Okay. So it is a lot slower to work with. Cool. All right. Interesting answer. How do you um, learn the technical side, not the visual side? Like if you want to like go and figure out how to do something, where do you go? A good place to start is just looking for uh, tutorials. Yeah. There's a whole bunch of tutorials. There wasn't a lot of tutorials in for Houdini, but these days there's quite a bit and there's some courses. Also forums, chat rooms. Do they have those? Yeah, there's a few running on um, Discord. Discord is like a gaming chat thing. Discord. Yeah, and there's a few for Houdini there. Okay, cool. It all comes down to how much effort you put on it. You have to spend, with Houdini especially, a few months, if not years, until you get a good understanding on some areas of it. You, you'll never be able to master the whole of it. Do you think you can specialize as a, say, simulations or particle specialist, or do you think you need to have more skills in your tool belt, such as be a modeler or something like that? You do need to learn all the other tasks involved in VFX before that, uh, because you're, you're part of a team. You work on a bigger, what do you call it? In a big pipeline. Yeah, you, you work on a pipeline, and you need to be able to um, articulate what you need from the modeling department or the modeling team or the animation team, and you need to know maybe what the shading of your simulation is going to be like for you to decide on a specific simulation um, setup or process. Yeah. So is there, any, is there many jobs as just specializing in either effects using particles or uh, simulations? There is if you are looking to work on a VFX house doing Hollywood stuff. There is not so much in Australia for you to specialize in fluid simulation, for example. What TV, movies, magazines, books inspired you when you were growing up? I sneaked in a lot of B-grade movies when I was little. and My parents would leave me with my brother. A lot of them were scary sci-fi movies, black and white. So some of those images just still hold me today, haunt me. And do you think that inspired you to get into this sort of stuff? Yeah, for sure. Also, um, watching cartoons, there was a lot of Japanese cartoons from the early 70s and 60s with flying robots and cars, Ultraman, Ultra 7, Astro Boy. Astro Boy. Yeah, yeah. Space, space Giants, which was called something different in Peru. What was it like living in Lima, Peru, South America? And when and why did you immigrate to Australia? I liked living in Lima, Peru. I had a good childhood with lots of animals and pets, uh, lots of places to explore. Uh, I lived on a, on a Le Corbusier-inspired city with lots of high-rise buildings, lots of concrete. Yeah. Maybe that's what I like, uh, brutalist architecture so much. 
But as unfriendly as it would have been for maybe adults, it was full of little areas to explore, car parks, lonely places where were designed to have lots of people, but no one will turn up. Yeah. Lots of parks. Uh, so no, it was good. I liked it. And at some points, the situation began pretty bad. There was a lot of terrorism and rising crime. And my parents decided to move to Australia, and I had to tag along because I was too young to get a job. Yeah. And there weren't any work, any jobs anyway, so. So how old were you at that point? I was 20. 20. <laughs> well, it was a good time to move. Did you know any English? Yeah, I learned English at school, but it was kind of like an American English. I hear that you had animals when you were in Peru. Do you have any guinea pigs? No, I never had guinea pigs. I think because um, people like to eat guinea pigs over there. <laughs> I right? heard that. I was just. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm going to my guinea pigs, which are downstairs. I'm going to uh, lock them up. Uh, I already put some salt and mayo on one of those. <laughs> I rolled it up in a burrito. I was wondering when you asked me about my guinea pigs. That's a bit suspicious. I didn't, um, I didn't have breakfast, so I'm a bit hungry. <laughs> It's, a, it's not a joke. It's actually a real thing. Yeah, traditionally they breed and eat guinea pigs, but they're they're cute. I wouldn't like eating them now. But I had a whole bunch of animals. I had lizard. I mean, alligators, parrots, monkeys, coatis. People just keep bringing these animals. Maybe it's not such a good idea to have such exotic animals. When did you discover 3D, and how did you become so passionate about it? It would have been maybe the really early 80s when there was a World Fair event. And my dad worked at IBM. He worked there for many, many years. Yep. And IBM had a pavilion. They had this massive computer that was like a really big fridge on its side yep. with a built-in keyboard and a built-in screen. And they had a wireframe of a car model. Yeah. And you could rotate it with all these actual knobs, open the door, rotate it, open the headlights. And I was like, wow, oh, this is amazing how, how they do these things. Briefly, can you describe your career path? How did you start working in modeling and compositing and then pivot to simulation work? Well, when I was still at uni doing architecture, I got a, I got a job doing ArcVis. Yeah. That was, uh, that was yeah, my first time getting paid for 3D, which was pretty good. After, I think, maybe a year, I moved to games very briefly, and then I ended up in Channel 7. And that's uh, in the promo department? Well, it was a graphics department, yeah. doing graphics mostly for promo, and a bit of news, and any special events they had. Okay. From there, I got to Animal Logic to work on Farscape, a TV series, and from there, I freelanced for a few years. And then I started a small business. Yep. When that folded, I ended up here in Melbourne working for Illura. And after that, I've been doing fluid simulation. And uh, your small business, that was a studio? Yes, that's right. Over the years, which projects were the most successful and you found the most satisfying? One of the projects that stands out is Anchor Milk, which I did for a Sydney company. It was the first job that I got to use Houdini quite a bit. Before then, it was real flow with very little Houdini. Yeah. And it had a few shots. There was a big component of some elements that uh, we've never done before. And there was uh, quite a bit of R&D. As satisfying as it was to finish a job, it was also super stressful. Okay. I actually got a chest infection and then I got hives. 
<laughs> in the eight weeks that this job went for. It all the job came out okay? Yeah, it came out really good. Uh, one of the jobs I'm the most proud of. And do you think because you were stressed you got sick or do you think it was just... Yeah, coincidence? for sure. Have you had any failures in your career and what have you learned from them? Yes, of course I had many failures and I have learned a lot from them. Very good. Next question. (laughs) No, no. Most of my stuff-ups were before I started doing simulation work. I mean, I do stuff-up in simulation, but not terrible stuff-ups that you miss a deadline or rendered a wrong camera, things like that. Yeah. Which has happened before. It's like I've come back after putting an all-nighter and checked the renders. The job is due at 12 and you rendered a wrong camera or something crazy like that. Uh, it just comes down to not rushing. I hate rushing. Yeah. I won't rush to get on the tram. You know, I just hate passionately rushing on anything. I think that not rushing is a good point. I find that when I rush, I become more stressed. And yeah. Because I try to put too many tasks into a small amount of time. And when I'm stressed, I make more mistakes. And that's what you're talking about. Yeah, exactly. Um, make lists of things to do. Put a timer. Like these days when I work on the computer, I've got a timer on the t- all the time. In addition to the, the job timer. Yeah. If I ever lose track of time, would happen sometimes. I can see, oh, I've been on this thing for two hours. I need to take a break. Yeah. Or when I'm really busy, I do a list of what I want to do and how much time I kind of allocate to each one. If it goes over a little bit, great. But at least it stops you from spending a whole day on something that you should have not spent a whole day on. Yeah. Other things I learned is that it's okay to stuff up. You learn from your mistakes, you know, instead of going on around and sobbing for ages how you stuffed it up or these didn't work. Yeah. Try to find what, what can you learn from this experience. Another good point is to hoping for things. You know, you can't just hope this will work out and can turn up and check it didn't work out. You have to uh, be good at scheduling, budgeting, all the things that people think are boring are actually necessary. It's your framework that will help you not stuff up yeah. and have allowances for time. If you think this is, uh, if there's something you haven't done before, allow more time for it. If you get red flags from the clients, allow extra time for dealing with them, limit the round of feedback. It's all about um, putting some framework and some limits on the randomness that comes out of doing fluids and general CGI work yeah, and dealing with clients. So what's the hardest thing you've had to learn to progress your career? That would be learning to let go, not to be attached to your work. Some people early in their careers that are really protective about their work. When you ask them, can I check this render? Can I check this animation? They go, no, it's not, not ready yet, not ready yet, not ready yet. I just want to see, you know, I'm not going to criticize your work. And it's something that maybe it's like an ego thing. You kind of need to be egoless, which is a bit of a contradiction because it's your work. But at the same time, it's not, it's not your baby. It's not art that you do in your spare time. It's commercial work. Yeah. So you need to learn to, to take feedback in a good way, learn to... To be proactive about dealing with the clients, I think taking emotion out of your, maybe not emotion out of your work, but emotion out of the process of doing the work, that's really important to to make a job successful and not lose money, yeah. not get into the red zone of budgeting or scheduling. Yeah. Um, also learning Houdini, that was also hard. It's still hard. 
So you moved from Channel 7 where you sort of just got going in your career uh, and then you worked on a television series. Could you tell us a little bit about that? After a few years at Channel 7, after that's in the Olympics, I got a, I can't remember how I got the job at Animalogic doing Farscape. It was a really good team with maybe 10, 15, 3D guys. Yeah. And it was a science fiction show? Yeah, Farscape was a science fiction show. I would have paid to work there because I learned so much from these, these guys. And what sort of work was it? Well, I remember starting there and the 3D supervisor told me, look, these are your shots. These are the plates. Make this thing explode. Yeah. So, okay, what's inside this spaceship? Is there like a model with the inert? Is there a, like a scheme of what the technology yeah. is? What do you want me to do? You know, what it needs to look like? Yeah. No, you, you make it yourself. And did you find that good or bad? Uh, it was a bit terrifying at the beginning because I was like, holy crap, I need to model the inside of the spaceship, break it, all these particles, uh, fire stock footage, and try to put some fiery particles. Um, so it was all up to me, the, the timing, the pacing, how we break, the framing. And what was the director's process like? Did they come in and review or did you do much pre-visualization back then or was it just do the shot? There was previews involved, uh, but I didn't work on the previews. Someone else did the, the previews. I think they did the previews before they actually shot yeah. the elements, which is good. But we had reviews at the Flame Suites every so many days. Yeah, But it, it was good. It was plenty of time. We would have like at least an hour lunch every day, go out for coffee breaks. It was probably the, the nicest run show I worked at. Yeah. And I still keep in touch with a whole bunch of the guys I work with. Like a lot of other artists, you decided to set up your own studio. What was it like running your own studio? And what led you to start up Monkey Business? Oh, <laughs> That's a good term, <laughs> call it that. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, and what led you to start up Monkey Lab? Well, by then, being young and green and completely deluded... I thought I knew everything. Yeah. Why do I need to work for other people? I can do this on my own. Screw that. Yeah, I started Monkey Lab and it grew gradually from just myself working at home with a couple of freelancers, which was pretty good. I was making a good enough living. Yep. Getting okay clients. But um, of course, I wanted a higher end work. When I started, it was broadcasts. Um, okay. But I wanted TV commercials because I thought they were sexy or something. And they have more money. Yes, they did. So it slowly grew up and slowly went out of control. Yeah, out of control, as in too many workers or too many deadlines or not enough. Yeah, a bit of everything. It was good. It was crazy. And it was also super stressful. It was like having a, a crazy girlfriend, <laughs> a crazy hot girlfriend. You know, it's fun. It's good. The good times are good. but The bad times are completely nuts. Yeah. And I do miss the madness every now and then, but it was, yeah, like I said, I was young and naive and I was focused on quality at all costs. Yeah. And I think clients are happy for you to do that, yeah. you know, keep pushing resources, putting resources, make it as good as possible. We'll pay you the same amount. You had many years of, of building this business, yeah? Yeah, I went on for a few years and it... We started doing bigger jobs, bigger jobs, bigger jobs, and um, then it, it just became a bit too much. Yeah, the global financial crisis hit, and that was just the last nail. I thought, nah, this needs to stop. 
And did you get some good work out in that period? Yeah, I did. We did a whole bunch of uh, the Coca-Cola job, a whole bunch of Foxtel jobs, some jobs for Panasonic. I met the Collider guys who are still my clients now and I like working with. And what do you think was the biggest pressure on your studio? Do you think it was uh, low budgets, high expectations or other issues? What do you think the biggest pressure for you was? Well, back then the expectations were not as crazy as they are today. The budgets were maybe not as crap as they are today, but it was uh, it was cash flow. I I came to it from an artist side of things, not a business person perspective, and I think in the end that was that was a problem. Because I was calling the shots, even if the producer would tell me, now we're going over budget, we can't put any more people, we need to let this go. I was, I was like, no, no, make it look really good. Yeah. And yeah, that's not, that's not good business practice. You and me have both closed businesses and you learn a lot out of it. Yeah, that's absolutely right. The way I see it, that was my, um, my schooling on getting some business skills and learning to balance being too ambitious and being a bit more realistic and down to earth when it comes down to to budgets and also learning to master something before you jump to the next that next level of skill or job size project size team size do you think that studios are viable today running studios uh some people might disagree with me but i think there is too many studios. There's too much competition. The, the industry is over-service, as they say. And I, I think the budgets are just too small. And do you think that young people should try and start a, a studio where there's more than just themselves or a co-op? Uh, they actually get together in one building and start a business? Do you think that that's something you would recommend? Should people make mistakes and learn from them? Yes, they should. But don't start a studio unless you've got something to sell that's unique to you. Don't just do a studio because you want to be your own boss. Yeah. Like research the market and see how many other studios are offering the same thing. Learn about pricing projects, scheduling, you know, be a bit more of a producer. And if you're not offering anything new, you're just going to be competing on price, which sucks. Yeah. It's but just uh, it's just a race to the bottom and just just adding to the noise there is at the moment everywhere. Yeah, well, I think that uh, being an independent artist, so a person who works for themselves, is very achievable. Uh, I think that once you start hiring officers and bringing in employees, that's when the challenges start. You've got to have the business skills these days, and you've got to, yeah, you've got to really know, really want to do it, and really know how to manage your cash flow. Yeah, no, that that's right. I overheads will will quickly overwhelm you i think um and these days you don't really need to have the flashy studios i used to have back then you yeah. know the times that you need to have clients on site to check your work or give you reviews you can do all this stuff remotely yeah uh, there's still some studios that think you know you need to have a flashy office and stuff like that and i just don't think the clients care as much anymore no, they, they want to know that the money is going into the actual product, not into to receptionists and a fish pond, which I used to have. You had a fish pond. <laughs> cool. <laughs> We're both lovers of pets. After you closed Monkey Lab, uh, you went to you moved from Sydney to Melbourne. Fresh start, I imagine. 
and then you went to work at Allura when they were doing commercials and television work. And they were also doing cinema work as well. Tell us about your role at Allura. After I closed the business, uh, I got a job at Illura and they they paid for my relocation fees. So I thought, great, I always like Melbourne. Let's go to Melbourne. Yep. They got me to to lead the TVC department. And it was a small team. It was pretty small compared to film. There was a clear divide between film and TVC, which I found kind of weird. Okay. Uh, but no, it was good. We did a whole bunch of jobs. I... We did pitching for work, doing storyboards, uh, treatments. It'd be great if you could tell us about one of the commercial projects that you did at Allura that you found interesting and enjoyed. We did a, a lot of the targets, little commercials. I think there were 15 seconds to show the sale of this or the sale of that. Yeah. And that was a lot of fun because I could get the agency storyboard and the agency script and just tweak it a little bit. Yeah into something that was a bit more fun. I did got a lot of rejections because um, I pushed it maybe a bit too far, too, yeah. too far away from the family-friendly target zone. But then they got us to do their target toy sale, and that was going to be the first stereo cinema TVC. So a 3D with the glasses that you wear. Yeah, that's side. right. That's right. That was... It was interesting. There's a whole bunch of things that you don't realize that you need to keep in mind when blocking the TVC and doing the edit. Yeah. It has to do with the depth of field or where your eyes are focused. Okay. Which you don't have on you know, non-stereo projects. You know, you can cut from this to that without any any problem or you can have quick cuts. With yeah. stereo, you need to allow time for the viewer's eyes to, to focus and you kind of need to lead their, their eye into specific areas. Yeah. We got some monitors, some 3D monitors, and yep. it was interesting because you look at the depth of, at the depth in a small computer monitor, and you think it's not it's not deep enough. I don't have enough depth of field. There's not enough um, stereo. Yeah. But when you look at it on a bigger monitor, that distance gets magnified. So we had to quickly learn that you have to move it in small increments. Okay. If you could see that the stereo separation was a bit too low, that would have been okay on the bigger screen. And if you're quoting a stereo job now, how much more time would you allow for doing it in stereo? Do you think that it takes a lot longer? That's what I'm asking. Yeah, it does. It probably adds another 30 40% for the extra care you need on the editing. Yeah. Um, more time in the comping. You're comping two, two images and you're rendering two, two streams of files. So... Yeah. Yeah, you have to multiply your storage and render times. Cool. Well, that's really interesting. I've never worked on a stereo project before. Very interesting. Did you work on both film and commercial stuff while you were there? I did work on a couple of films to help the film guys because they had too many shots to do. And some of the 3D guys I work with on TVC, they also helped out on some shots. Okay. Um, I, I don't particularly like working on film. Okay. And why is that? Because it goes on for too long. Yeah. A film is such a big endeavor. You rarely get to see the director or get feedback from the director. There's all these people in the middle. Yeah. When you do something, an effect, the people that see it are not the final decision makers. So you get a whole bunch of revisions. And sometimes you end up moving this, whatever you're doing, to all possible pixels on the screen over the space of months and months. Yeah. You lose a bit of ownership, I think. And after moving an explosion to the right, to the left, up and down, you kind of stop caring about it. 
And so if you compare that, you're working on something for a couple of months versus you can't, couldn't imagine a commercial project going for a couple of months. So, yeah, there's a big difference in time, you're saying? Time and attention. Yeah. You know, people on a TVC, you've got maybe, what, four, five, six, 12 shots maximum. Yeah. On a film, you've got thousands of shots. Do you feel ownership over your shot? Uh, to some extent, yeah, but I'm also happy to let it go. And if they render it in a way that I don't particularly like, I'm, I'm cool with that. I would maybe have, if I have time, I will do my own render for the real, my own version. So for young kids, what would you recommend? Commercial work or, or film work? Film has a big attraction with, with the kids. You know, yeah. seeing the name of the, their name on the titles together with 3,000 other names. Maybe I'm a cynic about those things. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a big process and endeavor that it's a production line. You know, it's like saying, I want to work on a factory and yeah. see my name on the bottom list of the chocolate bar. Yeah. <laughs> so the factory can be fun. Your enjoyment comes from being satisfied with your end product. Yeah, that is dangerous advice, I'll say, because it makes you attach to your work. And that's something that I struggled for years and years. You know, you finish a shot and you think, oh, especially when you're younger, you think, this is amazing. This is really good. And you show it to the director. No, that sucks. I don't like it. Make the logo bigger or something like that. And you just take it badly. It's like, what the hell? They don't know what they're talking about. You know, my thing is so much better than yours. My chocolate is tasty or whatever. I think that the other issue is, is that you don't want to do it for the likes, for the amount of people that see it. So that's my issue is that those people don't care about the work. They might watch it and enjoy it but you're the person who cares about it. And often the people who make it are the people who care about it and they're around you. And if you all like it, then that's much more satisfying than having 9 million people watch it on YouTube. Well, yeah, th that is true. I, I agree with that. You need to take ownership of your craft. And, and that is, it's not that I'm buying film work a lot, but when you're doing the same thing over and over and over, to me, it stops being craft. Commercial work is not all roses either. You know, it's, pretty full-on, demanding, frustrating, stressful. But because it's less shots, people take more time on these shots, you know, and you get more fe better feedback from the people involved and the uh, decision makers, the stakeholders. But kids, if you want to do film, do film. It's good. You learn a lot on a, on a bigger place, for sure. TVC, I think you need to wear too many hats from the beginning. So it's something that you could move on later on if you want more challenge, maybe. And there's a massive opportunity to travel because there's so many studios in different cities. That's right. You might be able to see a city when you commute at 10 p.m. at home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you still get to go live in Vancouver or L.A. or, you know. Yeah, you can see all those airports. Uh, you're a cynic. <laughs> I lived in Vancouver for two years doing work and it's the best part of my life. And yeah, when you're young, sometimes work is not the most important thing and you might do the work, but then you go off on the weekends traveling, which we did tons of that. So yeah, there's benefits in working overseas, especially when you've got no kids. So when did you discover simulations and become so passionate about it? I first got to do simulation back in the early 2000s. Uh, on a very early version of Real Flow. And it was for a job. We had to rush it. We did it. I kind of thought, hey, this is kind of interesting. It's cool. And didn't touch it until many years later. And I did a job at Illura. And from that moment on, I was a simulations guy. When they will come with a simulation brief or uh, 
scripts, everyone will just move away and I will just be the only one standing there. <laughs> you do it. <laughs> Which eventually I start to enjoy. Yeah. We were working on this job for Cadbury. Yeah. And I think it was five weeks project and there were a whole bunch of fluid simulations, maybe a handful. And I had my simulation of this chocolate or caramel twirling really well and I got it to work. I was like, oh, this is starting to look cool. That was the first time I was like, you know, this is kind of kind of cool. I turned up on a Monday, 9.30ish, happy with my work. So we're on the final stretch and producer is, now oh, there's something wrong with the files. They corrupted or something. So after freaking out for a little bit, I go, all right, let's just do it again. And the second time was a lot faster. Yeah. It was a good experience in a way that it's like, hey, your first batch, it's fine, but the second will be better, the third one will be even better. And I kind of got the hang out of it, and you kind of lose the fear of the blank page. Where do you start from this? So, yeah, from that moment on, I was, thinking, I was kind of yeah, looking forward for any fluid sim work. You can turn it around once you've done it before and not to panic. Did you panic? I think I was by then kind of tired, and I was like, ah. It was more resignation. It's like, all right, let's do it again. (laughs) (laughs) Cool. That sort of led you to where you are now, that working on those simulation jobs? Yes. Well, once I finished with Elura, I did a couple of generalist jobs. Yeah. This is maybe in 2011, 2010. Yeah. The trend was really clear. It was outsourcing, modeling, outsourcing, lighting. Studios weren't willing to pay good rates anymore because yeah. hey, you could outsource it. There, there wasn't many people outsourcing yeah. overseas, but it was just two plus two. This is going to get more common and yeah. I'm going to be competing with people in other countries, maybe third world countries, which have not such a high cost of living as we have here. So then I thought, hey, maybe I could do simulations, yeah. which not many people can do. So, no, they can't. Uh, not well anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think that 3D artists are paid a professional income at the moment and it matches their skills and the complexity of the work? They are, but I think experienced artists are not getting paid enough. I think maybe for entry level, but it quickly, the curve quickly flattens. Yep. And there's a point in which you can't get any more money. Okay. So do you think that uh, the work is complex to the point like an accountant or maybe even uh, like a contract lawyer. Do you think that the using the programs is that complex? Probably even more complex uh, because you have to continually keep learning. Yeah, and if it is that complex, do you think that people who work in 3D get paid as much as people who work in those professions? Well, I don't know accountants, but they're definitely not getting paid as much as um, as a good lawyer. It comes from budgets not being large enough for production, post-production. And that just trickles down to people not getting paid enough because there simply there isn't that much to share around. Do you think that $100,000 is a, is like a good wage, a senior wage? And do you think there's many 3D artists earning that sort of money? I think there's a few earning over 100 but not a lot over 100 I think if you maybe 120 Yeah. It's probably as good as you can get here in Australia, maybe 140 if you're supervising anything. But yeah. I think that's not enough to warrant you not having time out or for the amount of work and constant training that you need to be doing. 
And the majority, I think that that's a good amount. It's just that the majority of artists, I don't think, earn that amount. Uh, they earn less than that. Yeah, maybe they shouldn't be called artists. Maybe we should call professional 3D engineers. <laughs> maybe that will increase the, increase the rates, but I doubt it. Well, Australia is expensive. Yeah. You know, that's the thing. A hundred, a hundred K won't. I don't think that will last you that long. If you've got a, a family and kids and a mortgage and you own a house that's a million dollars and you've got to pay it off, $100,000 is it's a good wage, a very good wage, but you'll be spending it. You'll be spending the majority of it. The wages have definitely not kept up with inflation. Uh, if we were increasing our wages by 5%, like insurance companies do, we would be great. Or electricity providers, sweet. But it doesn't happen. From the time I started doing 3D professionally, I very quickly increased my wage, my salary or my rate. But it kind of flattened out and it slowly has been moving, maybe slightly upwards, but nowhere as near as I would have liked it to be. I've discussed this on my podcast before. In the late 90s, early 2000s, people earned around $55.60 an hour uh, working freelance. And now it hasn't gone up that significant. I think back in the day, I remember talking to someone that was working for Weta. Yeah. They were flown in from the US to work. This is when Weta was on his heyday. They were absorbing people everywhere. And they were being worked to the bone like six days a week, which I guess now is normal. But they were getting paid about $5,000 a week, which is yeah. pretty sweet. I would put my life on hold for that. But that was that's not a trend. You know, now it's let's keep working the same, but let's pay you half of that. How do you think as an industry we can work together to increase the amount that people get paid, considering how professional and how intelligent you have to be to run this software these days? I think it's complicated. It's one of those professions which is seen as a glamour profession, like being a rock star or a fashion photographer or a supermodel. Everyone wants to do it. There's many people wanting to get in. An actor. Or an actor, yeah. yeah. Very few do get in and very even fewer than that are doing an okay living at it. Because of that, there's a steady supply of people. It's, uh, it's supply and demand. There's lots of people to choose from. So I think on the... Entry level and medium, people tend to be a bit more of a commodity. Maybe on the senior or specialized skill sets, you kind of have a bit of leverage, but it comes down to how much leverage you have. You know, you can just go to your boss and say, I want to get $200,000. I'll be like, okay, maybe in your next job. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that you should be constantly thinking about increases as you progress through your career and your skills increase. I think you need to get creative if you want to um, constantly increase your earning capacity in this field because there is a, there's a limit. And with, I'm not sure about films. I mean, I kind of have a vague idea of how uh, the bidding process works, which is another kind of worms. But with TVC, there is more, there's different media now. There's not just TV commercials. You have to have online or point of sale, digital displays social media, so all those juicy TVC budgets get divided by yep. five because you have to do all different specific content. I think it's interesting for us to sort of talk about that and sort of people to think about that because I think it is an important issue for the long-term sustainability of the industry. 
what led you to set up a specialised fluid simulation studio? You're sort of a studio, but you're really a one or two man sort of band. I've got a small core team that I bring in to assist on larger jobs or projects that need very specific technical setups. Do you work for clients internationally and how do you attract the work from overseas? Most of my work is for overseas because there's not that many fluid simulation jobs going at one point. And at this point, it's word of mouth or posting things on Vimeo, which is not such a big deal now, Facebook either, but a bit of social media, but mostly word of mouth. And every now and then I send emails when I really want to work with a company. I send them some emails, try to get the emails of the producer or the creative director, send them my work. And how does it differ for you when you're working with someone who's up the road or overseas? What's the difference? The main difference is time zone, I guess, which is which is good and bad. In a, in a way, not being on the same time zone, time zone allows you to, to work more flexible hours. But also you need to be available to have calls or Skypes at 10 p.m., sometimes 11 p.m. or really early in the morning. When you work with local companies, you kind of need to be around for the 9 to 5, which sometimes I'm not a fan of. <laughs> <laughs> Do you run two computers? I run a, a handful of computers. A handful of computers. Yeah, I, I had more computers. I had about 10 or 12, but I had to cut down when I moved to my home office. Yep. Because I didn't want to pay a giant electricity bill. <laughs> that, that's interesting. That's all. Have, you got them all, have you got them in a rack or are they... Just sitting in a line or? Yeah, I've got them on a rack now. It keeps things a lot tidier and yeah. it keeps my room nice and warm in winter. Cool. <laughs> on a typical project, what do you receive from a client? Ideally, I would get an animatic, but sometimes you get a you get a storyboard only and a script. I mean, you always get a script, but I think the ideal scenario is to get the, the whole thing. Um, a treatment from the director or agency, an animatic and references of what they actually want. When that's not the case, uh, I need to see something on paper. I need to see a drawing. Yep. Uh, even if it's something simple, it's good to put it on, put it in writing, put it on a, on a way that we can all share the same image because a, a fluid simulation is quite abstract. Can people describe it in a written brief? To some extent, yes, but references are also good. And there is a bit of maybe to and fro at the beginning to try to to extract the right information from the client and also to make them aware of some limitations of fluid simulation because after all it's a simulation it's not real yeah so there are things that fluid simulations can do and there are things that it can't do and some other things maybe it can but it would take a really long time to do do they supply you plates or the, the edit? Do you usually put it over the top to see how it comps in? How, what happens in that process? Well, it depends on the job. Sometimes I do get plates. Uh, some, of the, some of the jobs might be a completely uh, CG back shot. Yeah. So there's no plates. And I would get some models for the bottles or on other jobs I need to provide the models. So I cost that into the whole equation. Yeah. And if there is moving animated geometry, I will get an Olympic file with um, the animation on it. And this needs to be formatted for simulation. 
one of my pet hates is when you ask Alembics, can I get a Alembic of the collision objects and an Alembic of the camera separate? Okay. Again, both together. That's uh, not too bad. But sometimes they grab the whole file and put it on a gigantic Alembic. <laughs> so you open this in Houdini, you end up with like 3,000 nodes. It's like, ah, no, you sent me the collision. And do you have like a document saying to you send to them how you want it? Or do you just tell them on the phone? Yeah, no, I do. I do. After all these jobs, I've got like a little document I send. I copy and paste it and put it on the email. Yeah. This is what I need. And um, also a bit of a chat about expectations, managing client expectations and how long it takes to get revisions on simulation. Because uh, that's, I suppose, one of the interesting parts is that you actually don't know for sure that some things are going to work. So how do you limit the expectations of them? Well, it depends on the job. Uh, some of the jobs are just make a splash or make this chocolate pour on this biscuit. Yeah. And I know it can be done. Uh, I've done it many, many times. So I can tell them, yeah, it's going to look this way. It won't look that way. But some other jobs are a bit more abstract, like the anchor milk, for example, or another job I did for Asus. It was quite abstract and went from a few weeks because it involved a bit of exploration or what could we do, um, some R&D. But, yeah, you need to limit uh, the scope of what they want. You need to, in a way, let the particles do what they want to do with limited set of parameters and circumstances. And do you give them the finished product? Or, like, if you're working with, say, a visual effects house, or do you give them, do you send them the project? Or do you send them the finished render? Or do they render it out themselves and do the color grade on it? How does the actual ending process work? Well, again... It depends. Earlier on, I ended up just providing animated meshes. Uh, uh, it used to be bin files, which are a native RealFlow export file, which is a really good file format. Yeah. It's very compact, and RealFlow provided all these import export things for all the 3D apps. But yeah. since then, it's broken. So now it's Alembic, but it depends on the job. Sometimes I provide them uh, rendered images, and they comp it on their end, or sometimes I do a render and comping as well. Okay. Uh, but I never send the uh, source files. Yeah, so you don't you don't send them. You own the intellectual property of your source files. Yeah, that's right. I've been asked many times. Can you send me a source files, or can you set it up and we'll finish it here? And uh, yeah, no, I don't work like that. I've got I've got some assets and plugins developed over the years. Yeah. And yeah, I would be foolish to share those around. Yeah. Because in a way, they are your IP. They are they are, they are my competitive advantage. Yeah. If it was modeling or lighting or something that is not so niche, I would share files, yep. but not for um, fluid sim projects. If you could explain the process of creating the simulation uh, for a TVC from commencement to delivery. First is getting the brief from the from my clients. Yep. Getting as much detail as you need, as I as they can provide. Uh, like I said, animatics, storyboards, treatment, references. Um, then we set some dates. Yeah. Uh, so if the job is four weeks or six weeks, I say, look, maybe let's do Tuesday and Thursday. In most jobs, you can't really see anything for the first week. You know, so setting up, doing the very first test, the results are quite not, not pretty. Yeah. So I tell them that, look, for the first week, I won't show you anything, but then it'll be like bi-weekly presentations to you. And usually they want to present to the agency, and that usually needs to be something a bit more polished. So I can't just, I can't just give them a particle preview. It needs to be with some sort of surface. Yeah. 
I try to give it as a VGB volume because it doesn't involve meshing and it's faster to do. Once I've seen the particles, once I've seen the volume shaded, we get approvals for, say, the velocity, the, the pace of the liquid, any collisions, amount of splashes, droplets. Then it's final surfacing, making a mesh, making sure the mesh is as nice as it can be, and yeah. delivering. If it's, uh, if it's some tricky, if it's transparent objects or transparent liquids, sometimes I do some render test. Yeah. If anything, just for my own... Uh, sanity is to make sure it's not it's going to work all right when they do it um, because sometimes with fluid sometimes you get little gaps inside if you haven't used enough particles yeah so you need to check for all those things and when you're rendering stuff are you rendering in the cloud or do you do it all from your studio i've rendered in the cloud before uh, a job i did for hayden cox it was a, a few million grains in houdini with instances i rendered i simulated and rendered that on the cloud yeah uh, but if it's not such a big render, if it's something that might go on for maybe two hours or even three hours, I'll render it locally. Yeah. If not, the cloud. Yeah. Um, and your renderers that you're using? Uh, at the moment, I'm using Redshift. Yeah, I might switch for some projects to... Fuck, what's the name? Arnold? Uh, to Arnold. Yeah, Arnold. I'm hoping that a new release of Redshift with more, reflect, with more reflection, refraction bounces will mean that I don't need to go to Arnold because it's a, it's a CPU render, so it's a lot slower than Redshift. Okay. What's the approval process like and how do you get through that unscathed? <laughs> well, it comes down to managing ex client expectations. I need to make clear earlier on that simulation, it's not real time. Sometimes it's not even overnight. It can be 100% art directable. So don't expect me to move individual droplets here and there. Um, I think it's important to get on the initial brief, what is this simulation meant to convey? Usually it's to make the product, make the product look edible and delicious. Once you get all that information, what, what are the priorities? That's what it comes down to, prioritizing what's important of the simulation. Uh, most clients are, are a bit wary about fluid seams, so, which is a good thing. Yeah they tend not to stuff around with them too much. So when you do the first previews, you always need to do a little write-up. The simulation is doing this. These are the bits I'm not happy with. These are the bits I'm still to address. What yeah. I want you to comment on is the thickness of the liquid or the splashing or that. So you kind of need to put some notes with all, all your um, feedback. Do you find that they read the notes first or they just watch it and then... I don't know what they do first, but they do read the notes eventually, I guess. Um, yeah. yeah, most most clients have been really good with that. I only had a couple of instances in all these years where the client comes comes back with some completely insane requests uh, that you just have to tell them, look, it's not a real liquid. If you want me to do this, this stuff, it'll be like a two-month job. And is there any tricks to stopping the budget blowing out other than just their expectations? The deadline. Usually you want a deadline. You want an on-air or it needs to be on social media. But I, I always put on my on my quote, this job is to be delivered this day. And if the job comes back, because a few times you get a deadline and they come back and say, well, actually the job is not on-air or not going to be distributed for another three months. And obviously I can't be stuffing around with this for another three months. So if they want more feedback, more changes, then that's extra. 
And the extras, do you usually often do that a lot, the extras? Uh, rarely. Rarely they go over. You need to be nice. You need to be accommodating. You know, if it's a request that you can do in a few hours, even if it's gone over, then I tend to do it. Yeah. You want to keep clients happy. Cool. Within reason. <laughs> uh, what's the best way for a producer or a creative director to budget and quote for a simulation job the best way would be to to ask me first <laughs> how long will this take uh, a lot of the places do that but at the same time sometimes they come back and they come in and with a with a set time we've got three weeks for this job and that's fine i can just tweak the quality controls uh, to make it work on that time frame. Most of the times, if not every time, I work to a set budget. As long as I've got a, a really clear brief, a deadline, and a list of deliverables, it's relatively safe to do that. But there's sometimes red flags. The client is on a rush. They want something quickly. They're not very technically experienced. Or if, it's, uh, if they haven't done simulation or any VFX work before, I tend to suss them out a bit longer um, before accepting the job. Yeah, also before accepting any job, I need to know what it is. A few times producers call me, hey, you got a job for a week. Are you available? I'm like, well, what is a job about? You know, if you want the Titanic exploding and raining unicorns and giant waves, no, it's not okay in a week. So I, I need to know what you need and then I can tell if it's doable. And do you think the producers should like try and estimate them themselves? Uh, and do you think that the knowledge of simulation is like people actually, a lot of producers have knowledge of simulation? No, they don't. But most of the times it's fine, you know, because they, the simulation is a part of a bigger, it's a component of a bigger job. So they have a budget already allocated from the agency or the brand and the simulation will be a part of that budget. So in your own work, if you're doing the project and you've got a good budget and you've planned it out, what, what are the challenges that will make it hard for you to achieve that budget? The reason that most 3D people hate fluid simulations is because someone's seen a tutorial or some work and seen how easy it is, and then they tell you, hey, you got a week to make this thing. They never touch the software and they think it's like modeling, lighting, rendering, do a tutorial, you're almost an expert. So they get thrown in a deep end with very high expectations and no experience. And in fluid simulation, one thing that's going to bite you in the butt really fast is not having done it before, lack of experience. There's many technical issues, like, for example, fast-moving objects, uh, collisions, using too many forces, too little forces, uh, too little substeps, or trying to get a wrong scale. There's an optimal scale for every sim even though the software packages say it's all scale agnostic. Yeah. There's a lot of things, and it all comes down to experience. And do you think that hitting the limit of the technology uh, and the equipment that you have and understanding where the limits are, is that something that you can learn quickly? Yes. Simulations tend to go from people not using enough particles or yeah. they going completely freaking bananas and using tens of millions of particles. And of course, then simulations take days to do, which I don't find it fun. So you quickly find the limits of the software and you need to work with those limitations in maybe different. It's different for Houdini and Realflow, for example. Realflow has got a very little set of tools, but they are really good. So you need to be 
quite creative on how you combine them and how you turn them on and off and how you limit certain effects to to really get the last drop of juice out of these tools. Yeah. Houdini goes to the RN, this completely flexible, unlimited way of handling things to the point that it's just overwhelming. And a lot of the simulations tend to suffer from being overworked. When you use, for example, um, maybe it's a personal preference, but when you use velocities instead of forces, fluid seams tend to look better with forces rather than direct velocity on particles. You tend to force it a bit too much. And I think the beauty of simulations and the beauty of liquid is that they do their own thing. You know, it's it's like painting with watercolors. The first time you try it, you end up with a complete lobby wet mess yeah but if you learn how to wet certain areas put the paint wait for it to dry then wet another area you know you need to learn there's different types of moist wetness and dry paper and how the paint reacts to it so again you you limit the madness to a point that it's still crazy but within these parameters and that, that's when it looks pretty but that's what it takes so many many iterations to get a simulation to look nice excellent If you'll go back to when you started doing simulations and you were to give yourself a tip or tell you not to do something, what would it be? You will be to learn programming really quickly. (laughs) Have patience and perseverance. They're kind of opposite, I guess. Be patient. And perseverance. And perseverance at the same time. Oh, the same thing, aren't they? No, no. I think you can be patient and have perseverance. Like, that's. I think that works well. Yeah. Cool. All righty. So, inspiration. Where do you look for inspiration in the world? I tend not to look at other people's work for inspiration too much because you end up kind of doing the same thing over and over. And it gives you a bit of a tunnel vision in what you want to do. Um, not that I do a lot of self-made work, but I like looking at uh, museum exhibitions, generally arty, arty-farty stuff or or movies, you know, non, non-blockbustery ones. Looking at nature, beauty, nature. What's your favorite movie? Office space, yeah, yeah. And the, the very few times that I'm thinking, oh, freelancing sucks, I need a full-time job, I watch Office Space and so like, <laughs> a good slap back to, to reality. What do you find interesting at the moment and what would you like to work on in the future? Chihuahuas and Pomeranians, little dogs. I want to breed little dogs and have lots of little dogs. Do you have any little dogs? Yeah, I've got two, two little dogs, Hector and Panda. They're good names, better than my animals' names. <laughs> so you don't want to, like, master Houdini before you die? Well, I think that's just a crazy thing to aspire to. I don't try to be too technical in that way. I mean, it's loving the tools because of the tools themselves. I think you really need to have a reason behind using the tools, you know, what are you trying to do with it. And I don't think you can never master Houdini. It's just too big and there's too many areas for it to know. And by the time, maybe if you manage to learn all of them now, there's going to be new ones in two years or in five years. That was really cool. I think that that's a great place to leave it. Thanks very much for sharing your knowledge with us. I really enjoyed it. Thanks, Matthew. It was fun. I like it a lot. <laughs> no, it was good. I really, I really enjoyed it myself. So thank you, man. If you like this podcast, it would be fantastic if you could go to iTunes and give us a positive review. It helps other people find us. You can check us out at mastersofmotion.com.au 
where you can see all the work that we talked about today and lots more outstanding motion design work. Or you can come find Matthew Packwood on Facebook where I post everything you need to know about Masters of Motion. You can find out more about Octavio at www.octavio.tv Thanks very much for listening. I hope you have a great week. Bye-bye.